The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 to 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are uh, picking back up our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, We uh, started this kind of in the autumn, and then uh, we took a break to go through the book of Ruth for... Advent. Um, it's one of the benefits of having um, congregation, both congregations kind of go through uh, the same series at the same time. Um, even when we come together for joint uh, services, we're kind of going through the same thing. So um, a few people kind of joke that like, oh, I, you had to do the one on sex and all that kind of stuff. So we'll start off the new year talking about sex, just like the rest of our culture does. Why not? Um, and uh, some people have said, oh, you know, it's kind of hard to, to, you know, these are hard passages or whatever. Um, I just want to say from the very beginning, it's really not. It's really not a hard passage to teach. It's not really a hard passage to understand. It's a very hard passage to live. It's a hard passage to, to receive, to hear, and to live out. Um, there are way harder passages in this book that we will get to later on. Um, so this is actually pretty straightforward in some ways. Um, as far as the understanding and teaching of it. It's the receiving application and having to live that out, particularly in the culture that we live in, that's a bit hard. And so I don't want to say too much preliminary um, comments because we'll actually unpack a lot of this as we go through it. And so let's, let's do, let's just dive in. Um, and particularly we want to start in these first few verses of 9 through 11 and really look at this idea um, because this, uh, this, the first few verses aren't particularly just about sex, as we'll see. 
but as we're going to move into uh, the rest of the chapter and then into chapter 7, because we're actually going to cover the first part of chapter 7 as well, um, the big kind of topic is around sex, marriage. Um, we'll touch on singleness a little bit today um, as well as probably next week as well. Um, and as we start off with this um, verse in, in chapter, uh, in chapter uh, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list um, people um, that are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, uh, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And many sermons have been taught on this as an entrance exam into heaven, right? And if there's an entrance exam into heaven, these are the people who have failed it. These are the people who are out. Um, but that's not exactly um, what the Bible says about salvation, Often we think of salvation as escaping this kind of um, earth. Um, the earth is corrupt, it's, it's dirty, it's broken. It is those things as it is now. And, and um, God's going to come destroy all that, and he's going to take the good people off the earth, and we will live in you know, this new kind of in heaven, you know, where we get a harp and a cloud, and we hang out with creepy angel babies. That's not the picture of what salvation is in the scripture. Salvation in the scripture is God coming down to earth. That's what we just celebrated in the incarnation. God coming and taking on human form. Um, salvation and the kingdom of God particularly is pictured in the scripture as God restoring or renewing the earth. We get to the end and it's heaven coming down, the city of God coming down to earth and earth being restored. It's being made new. So the kingdom of God, as Paul says here, is something that we inherit, something that we inherit. Now, Jesus will talk about the kingdom of God being at hand, meaning his ministry on earth um, was, was now, it was present, uh, it was on offer, it's on offer to us, and yet it's not fully consummated, it's not here yet, it's not here in its, its fullness yet. So when Paul talks about the kingdom of God, it's something that hasn't taken place yet. It's an inheritance. It's like an inheritance that you're waiting on, right? You have to wait for an inheritance because something has to happen um, before you receive the inheritance. Primarily, that person has to die first, right? Um, and then you get the inheritance. It's passed on to you. And so when Paul talks about the kingdom of God, he's referring to something not here yet. The kingdom of God will be the renewed world of a perfect human flourishing, perfect relationship with God, just as it was in the beginning when God created the earth. He put humans in it. He walked with them, um, and they were in perfect relationship with God. They were in perfect harmony with one another, in perfect harmony with nature, um, with their own bodies. There wasn't disease. There wasn't death. And then we, we fractured all of that, and sin had entered into the world by our rejecting of God and his ways. We struck out on our own. We wanted to do things our own way, and so disease and death and poverty and war and injustice and all the things that are making our headlines this morning have been introduced into the world. But God will come and make those things right once again and do away with all of those things. And those that are followers of him will inherit the earth with him, as Jesus said, the renewed earth. They will be the ones who receive the inheritance. Now, here's the thing about an inheritance. What do you do to earn an inheritance? You, you don't do anything, really, to earn an inheritance. An inheritance, by very nature, isn't something that you've earned. 
It's something that you get because you are a child or that you are a relative of the person who is giving you the inheritance. And this is exactly what the kingdom of God is like. It's like an inheritance. It is, it is what God gives to his children, those that are a part of his own. Richard Hayes, commentator, um, talking about these verses, verses 9 through 11, he says this. He says, these verses have provided a launching pad of countless moralistic sermons that decry the kinds of sinners listed here. In fact, the concern of the passage is that the Corinthians act as a community and assert the transformed identity of the baptized. The Corinthians are to stop seeing themselves as participants in the normal societal and economic structures of their city. Hear that? So there are structures in Corinth, and those structures are very similar to what we have today in many ways, particularly around sexuality. He wants them to stop participating as a community in the normal societal and economic structures of their city and act corporately in a way that will prefigure and proclaim the kingdom of God. So there's what they currently have, their current society, and then there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God in which his people will inherit. Paul is trying to get them to stop acting in accordance to, to, as a community with these structures and as a community start acting according to the structures of the kingdom of God, thus prefiguring it, but also proclaiming what the kingdom of God is like. Paul is seeking to re-socialize them into a new way of doing business, a new community of consciousness, a new community, a community that has different rules, different ways of operating, particularly around these big three things that our, our culture, humanity, has always struggled with, sex, money, and power. And they're to act differently in these areas amongst others. But these big kind of categories, we're looking at one of those today, primarily one of those today. Anthony Thistleton says it this way. He says, Paul here is not describing the qualifications required for an entrance exam. He's comparing habituated actions, which by definition can find no place in God's reign for the welfare of all those, um, for all those, uh, sorry, the welfare of all, um, for those with qualities in accordance with which Christian believers need to be transformed if they are going to have any confidence that they belong to God's new creation in Christ. And so he kind of begs the question, how do you know you're an heir? How do you know you're an heir that will inherit the kingdom of God? How do you know you're a Christian, essentially, is what that question is. If God is preparing the world, and preparing a world in which sex, money, power, relationships are all used differently in the way that they're used now, used in a way that's holistic, uh, used in life-giving ways, ways that don't lead to emotional breakdown, societal breakdown, but weave us together into complete wholeness and holiness, if that's what God is doing in the kingdom of God and he's creating a people that represent that kingdom, that will be a part of that kingdom, and if you aren't then using sex, money, power in that way, Paul asks the question, do you have any confidence that the Holy Spirit has actually come into your life and is preparing you for that new creation? So if you aren't changed in the way that you are using sex, money, power, etc., if you're using it the same way that you were before you became a Christian or in the same way that the world outside of the kingdom of God uses it, 
It's then that you should have, you, you might be a Christian, but Paul's saying you shouldn't have any assurance that you are. You shouldn't have any assurance that you're actually going to inherit the kingdom of God. Because the evidence would be that you are being transformed in these areas. Now, notice, um, because of the time and age that we live in, there are certain um, probably things on that list that, that prick our attention more or might offend us more or might raise our, our, our radar more, right? So, and many times this, this uh, passage has been used as a hammer um, for promiscuity, homosexuality, um, sexual immorality of all kinds, right? Um, and, and we do need to stop here because those things are against God's will. The, the, the word that Paul uses here um, for sexual immorality, um, where he says that we're to flee from sexual immorality, is the word porneia in Greek. It's the word that we get our root word pornography from. Right? Now, he could use a different word for adultery, um, which he uses in, 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 a, in another word in that list as well. But this idea of fleeing sexual immorality, this, this category of porneia that they had was any sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Um, that's really what God has designed sex for. He invented sex. We didn't, we didn't, God didn't create man and woman, and then he's like, what are they doing? <laughs> How did they figure that out? No, i got to come up with a plan now. What, you know, what's going on? Like he, he's the inventor of of, of sex. So it's, it doesn't scare God. It's not something dirty. It's not something to be ashamed of when used in the way that it was meant to be used. Um, it's, like your, it's like your fire, right? We enjoy our fireplace at our house um, this time of year. Love it. And it's great in the fireplace where it's meant to be. But you take a fire outside of your fireplace, you put it in your living room floor, that's, a, that's not a fire you're going to enjoy. We see the destruction that's wreaking havoc across Australia at the minute um, in, a, in a fire that is completely uncontained, completely out of control. And unless rain comes soon, there's no way to really defeat this fire. It's that big. These fires are joined together. The destructive nature of that. And it's the same way with sex. It's something that God has given us for our good, for, to warm us, to, to enjoy, um, something that is beautiful in the right kind of context. But outside of that outside of a heterosexual monogamous marriage, um, it's something that the Lord says actually brings um, heartache and destruction. We'll, we'll unpack that as we go, what that looks like. But look, there are other things on this list. It's not just the sexually immoral. There are the idolaters, those who make a God out of something that isn't God himself, those that are thieves, taking things that aren't theirs, those that are greedy, just basically a word describing materialistic people. Those that are concerned about gaining things for themselves, even at the expense of other people. A reviler, not a word that we use very much anymore, but a reviler basically is a gossip or someone who would insult somebody else. When's the last time you heard a sermon about gossips not getting into heaven? Swindlers, that's probably not the best translation of the word there. We tend to think of a swindler as someone who's a con artist, someone who's trying to take, you know, something illegally or dishonestly. But most commentators would say that word is actually ruthless business practice, not just illegal business practice, just ruthless business practice. 
And this, is, this list is important for us because what it tends to do is it tends to confront all of us um, in our kind of culture, in, the, in our cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Liberals love to highlight certain parts of that list, right? So people that find themselves more uh, on the liberal end of the spectrum want to highlight greed and how greed is bad, right? Capitalism unchecked is destroying everything, business practices that are wrong, Amazon needs to pay their taxes, climate change, and, and how business at least that love to highlight all of that, and, and rightly so. Conservatives ignore those things and highlight the things that liberals ignore, right? Conservatives tend to, te- tend to focus on sexuality and tend to put sexuality in a different category of wrong than greed, <laughs> tend to put it in a different category of wrong than gossip, materialism. Where else besides the church, or hopefully faithful churches, where else reflects the values that says that all of these things can be destructive to human flourishing, that all of these things can be an offense to God, that all of these things used the wrong way actually destroy the image of God in a person? Unfortunately, not many churches either, but that's where it should be. We will be called, you'll, if you're biblically faithful, you'll be called a liberal at some point. And if you're biblically faithful, you'll be called a conservative at some point. And that's okay. I'm not really interested in being a liberal or a progressive, or a conservative, or a traditionalist. I'm not really concerned with any of those labels. I just want to be faithful. And if we're faithful to the gospel, you'll be labeled all of those things at some point because the gospel will affirm things across all culture in time and space, not just our modern, western, postmodern kind of culture, but it'll also confront things in every single culture across time and space. Because we're all made in the image of God. And so there are things that God has put in us as humans, collectively as society, that eventually um, come to the surface that are good, that are, that are beautiful. But we're also broken. We're also sinful. And so there are things that raise to the surface that are injustice as well. Um, and we, without the Holy Spirit, get confused. We call things that are darkness light, things that are wrong right, and vice versa. So what do they have in common? These things, this list, what are all these things, both that would end up on a conservative or a a liberal list, what do they all have in common? Well, they all put the individual over the community. They all destroy the community, thus destroying the individuals as well, right? Greed. We're not being generous. Uh, We are amassing um, wealth and things for ourselves ends up in other people then not having enough. Um, You'll see Paul here, um, we need to be uh, careful. Paul is quoting um, kind of thoughts of the day or prevailing kind of thoughts here. And so when when, when he says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, notice those are in quotes. This is also, we call this 1 Corinthians. It's actually the second letter that he wrote because he's writing in response to and he references his first letter when I wrote to you before, and things like that. So, so they've written back to him, and now he's addressing some of the questions that they've had. Um, but he's also kind of using um, 
either, either things that they had written to him or these kind of prevailing ideas that were in their society. And some of these prevailing ideals are very similar to ours. We'll look at them closer in a second. But this idea that all things are lawful. He says, just because something might be lawful doesn't mean that it's actually helpful. Doesn't mean that it's beneficial. And so we thank God that we live in a society that has laws that restrain, um, uh, you know, murderers and, and theft and things like that. But not everything in the law is actually helpful or beneficial. We look to God and his law um, as our overarching guide. And sex is designed really for creating permanent communities. It's the, you've heard the talk about like the family is the building block kind of of society. And that's true. Sex is designed for creating permanent communities. So sex outside of marriage does the same thing as greed does. It does the same thing as slander. It does the same thing as materialism. It puts your needs as an individual over the needs of other people, over the needs of the community. And so if we are habitually living like this, again, it doesn't mean that you aren't a Christian necessarily, but you shouldn't be assured that you are. It should raise questions. If God is changing you to inhabit the future kingdom, then we will be changing people. We will be people who are being transformed. That doesn't mean that we're, we're perfect people. It doesn't mean that we don't screw up. It doesn't mean that we don't stumble and we don't fall. But is there, is there a trajectory in which God is making us more like his son from one degree of glory to the next? Are we even fighting that battle? Or, or are we just like, nah, this is just the way that it is. And if that's our attitude, then we really probably are, are in danger if our life doesn't look much different, then why are we expecting to inherit anything from a father that you don't bear any family resemblance to? So this is kind of sex and how it relates to the kingdom. Let's look at sex then and how it kind of its relationship to the culture. Um, moving on from, from verse 12. In verse 12, we see a couple um, um, attitudes pop up. This idea that all things are lawful. There were two attitudes that were in their culture, and we see them quoted here, all, all things are lawful. And then he also, this, uh, he quotes, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So these are these two kind of sayings or, or prevailing kind of thought that, that kind of highlight the first attitude. The Greeks had a very low view of the body and a very high view of the soul, right? And so whatever you did with your body didn't really matter. Um, your, body, your body was physical, it was tangible, it was rotting away, it was going to be, you know, dead eventually. It was your soul that mattered. It was your spirit. And so what you did with your spiritual life, your, your soul is what mattered. What you did with your body wasn't any big deal. And, and that kind of thinking, like culture often does, leaked into the church a bit. Um, and so there was this idea that, hey, sex is just like an appetite, right? Food's meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. Your body's meant for sex, sex for your body. Like it's, your sex is just a sexual appetite. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're Aroused, you have sex. It's just an appetite. Looking for the right word there. <laughs> Treacherous water when you're preaching on, on these things. And so there was this idea that it didn't, it didn't really matter what you did with your body. All things are lawful. Um, you're not breaking any law. You're not harming anybody. You're just feeding an appetite. The second thing that we see, the second one that we'll see is uh, look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which he wrote, so this is them writing to him, and then he quotes, he quotes them, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships 
relations with a woman. So that's what they had written to him. That's not Paul saying that. He actually disputes that. He says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own, her own husband. So you have this one view, hey, sex is just an appetite. What you do with your body doesn't matter. All things are lawful. And then this other view um, kind of is, it was the opposite. Sex is, is dirty. It's unspiritual. You shouldn't do it at all, even with your own spouse. And Paul's like, both of these views um, are, are not the biblical way to think about it. And again, I can't help but notice the kind of similar mirroring that we have in our society, right? A more liberal way. Hey, anything goes. Like anything goes. Consenting, go for it. Doesn't matter. Even the idea of who we are as men or as women, choose your own path. Or the conservative um, kind of rebuttal to that then is that sex is almost this thing that, that should, you know, not be talked about. It's, you know, it's, it shouldn't even be done. It, you know, it's, it's almost this taboo kind of thing, even within the right kind of relationship. And the Bible has a different view than all of that, than all of that. Verse, uh, uh, the middle of verse 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Then I shall, uh, shall I then take a members of Christ and make them a members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, when he talks about this idea of flesh, um, um, he says, listen, when, when you have sex with someone, you're united together and you become one body. He doesn't mean you become physically just one body. That's a bit redundant. Um, and he quotes back to the very beginning of Genesis, where the two, where Adam and Eve, the, the husband, uh, the wife would leave her family, cleave to her husband, and the two would become one flesh. This idea of flesh doesn't mean your physical skin, your physical body. It's, it's who you are as a whole person. When the Lord says he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh, he doesn't mean upon sprinkle it on your body. It means it would be on all people, on all persons, on, on who we are as, as people. Sex is the way that we give ourselves to someone. And, and in giving that, we become a union. We become something that is more than just the sum of its parts. So if you take sodium and you take chloride and you put them together in a chemical reaction, what do you end up with? Scientists in the room. Salt, good job. Um, you end up with salt. Now, salt isn't just like a pile of sodium and a pile of chloride. It, it's something, it becomes something different when those two things become together. It becomes something that's actually useful in a way that is different from sodium and chloride uh, on their own. And it's not just that you've just kind of combined them. You've combined them in a way that actually creates and makes something new, um, something that is different from. And it's the same way. Um, Sue and I have been married a while now, 25 years, and Sue isn't just a supplement to me. 
She's not just supplemental to me. She hasn't just made me a better man, although she has. She's made me a different person. I'm a different person because of her. Um, And likewise, um, we've been joined together and we've become different people. You know, I've I've said in the 25 years that we've been together, she's probably been married to four different men. They've just all been me. And that's true. She's making me something different. The Lord is using her in my life to make me something different than what I am. Not just supplemental, not just something in addition to that makes me better, but in some ways radically different. It's what sex is meant to do. It's, the, it's, it's part of the purpose of that. Sex is a vital component. It's not the only one, but it's a vital component of that intimacy, that vulnerability, that being naked and unashamed with somebody. And, and don't get hung up in the text here when he talks about uniting to a prostitute. You're like, well, I would never do that. I mean, who's you know, paying for sex? The prostitutes back then were, were a common way that men had pleasure. Um, again, um, it wasn't illegal in that sense. It was actually part of temple worship. Um, you, 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 you had a wife. Um, every, every adult um, in that time would have been married except for prostitutes or maybe an, an elderly widow or something like that. So if you were uh, an adult, you, you had a spouse. And the men had a wife. And back then in that Greek culture, the wife was for kids, um, it's for how, how you had kids, and it was also how you kind of were seen in society. It was how you kind of gained social status, you know, you would take your wife to events or, or dinners or whatever like that. But if you just wanted to like scratch that sexual itch, that wasn't what your wife was for. That was what prostitutes were for. And so you'd go by the brothel on the way home from work or you'd, you'd you know, in, in, in the temple or whatever it would be, it would be. But Paul says, listen, that's not how it's supposed to be. Even when you would unite to someone who's not your spouse, for them that would have been a, a prostitute at the time. He says, it's supposed to be a physical oneness with someone. Now, how does this kind of destroy community then? Paul says, you're not supposed to be physically one with someone unless you're socially, emotionally, economically one with someone. You're completely united to that one person. To just be sexually united with somebody, but not actually vulnerable, not actually exposed, not actually giving up independence in other areas of your life is, is some kind of Frankenstein monstrosity that the Lord never intended sex to be. We want to be naked and vulnerable physically, but we don't want to be naked personally. We don't want to be naked economically. I don't want our monies together. Our bodies together, yeah, sure, no big deal. But our bank accounts together? Mm. I might have to give up some independence there. I might have to actually give up. I might lose some things there. We want to be one physically, but not in any other way. And that's not how it was meant to be. It's putting our, our individual needs over the other person. Even if it is consenting, you understand that, right? Two people, let's just use each other for this and that's it. No, no harm done. But there is harm done. That's why it's a way harder to break up with somebody that you're sleeping with than someone you're not sleeping with. That should tell you something, right? That, that, that should be an indicator there's something more going on here. There's more at stake than what we admit to and let on. 
um, C.S. Lewis in his, his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, which is uh, a fictional kind of account of like a senior demon coaching a younger demon on how to like tempt uh, Christians and, you know, how to, how to get them to fall and things like that, right? So um, you have to read it in that kind of way. So within this, Screwtape, who's the, the name of the elder demon, he's talking about sex to this younger demon. And he says this, he says, Christ described it as one flesh. Now you can make humans forget that the man they called Paul did not confine it to married couples. Mere copulation, according to Paul, makes one flesh. The truth is, whenever a man lies with a woman, whether they like it or not, some kind of transcendental relationship or the potential for it is set up between them, um, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. This transcendental relationship was intended to produce, and if obediently entered into, marriage will produce affection, permanence, union, and family. I think that phrase is important, eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. And the more we enter into these kind of sexual relationships that aren't really the sexual relationships that we are entering into in a marriage or we are vulnerable in in any other way, eventually wear us down and you have to endure those the rest of your life. Even when the relationship ends, there's that baggage that comes with you. And we endure rather than enjoy. Sex is meant to be a way to say to someone that I, I belong exclusively to you. Which is why breaking up with someone that we sleep with is way harder. It's way more complicated. Tim Keller likens sex within a marriage to the Lord's Supper. We come to the Lord's Supper not to, not to be saved again, but to renew our covenant in some ways, to be reminded of this, this symbol of what the new covenant was, Christ and his, his blood shed for us, this establishing a new covenant. We come and we remember that. We renew this kind of covenant as it were. And sex is almost sacramental in that way within a marriage, within that relationship. We enter into that to be um, vulnerable and exposed um, uh, and united to one another in that intimate way that only sex brings. And so the Bible has a very high view of sex, not a, not a low one, not a, a casual kind of throwaway, disposable view, um, a much higher, beautiful view um, within that. We see uh, in verse 7, uh, chapter 7, we're going to uh, cover this section, so let's just read the first few verses then of chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. His response, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Feminists, hang on a second. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That would have been revolutionary talk. We'll come back to that in a second. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, uh, do not deprive one another of sex uh, within your marriage, perhaps, um, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Back then, the wives were essentially owned by husbands, as we said before. The man had authority over both his and his wife's sexuality. If a woman was unfaithful to her husband, she was a whore, a prostitute, 
Our vernacular, she was a slut. If a man was unfaithful, he was a man, he was a stud, he was a lad. Not much has changed. So Paul comes with this revolutionary idea about the way sex is. He's like, the woman actually has authority over her husband's sex. It's not his own to do with whatever he wants to do. He just can't be going out to see prostitutes on the way home. His sex life belongs to his wife. His wife has authority over that. And likewise, he over hers. Why? They belong to one another. They're not their own. They're not their own individuals anymore. They've become one flesh. And he advises married couples not to withhold sex. Don't use sex as a bargaining chip. Don't use it as a, as a, a way to, to hold power over um, your spouse. All that's going to do is damage your marriage. It'll damage your relationship. There might be times where you agree um, for spiritual reasons or health reasons um, not to. That's, obviously, that's understandable. Um, there, there might be um, reasons that you physically are, are unable to um, because of sickness or illness or whatever it may be. Um, obviously, that's, that's all part of, uh, of that. But he's talking about withholding it when we are able to. We're not to do that. Why? Because it, it just tends to lead to bad things. People will uh, tend to look for that in other ways then. Now, I want to be careful because most people probably these days don't enter into a marriage without any kind of sexual past. I'm guessing that's probably in the minority, um, unfortunately. Um, and probably a lot of people might enter into a relationship with sexual trauma in their past. So not only do we sin, but we are sinned against. Um, and that can complicate sexual relationships and marriages. It can make things difficult. It can make things hard. Um, and it's not easy. Um, our, our culture tends to highlight all the great, amazing things about sex and never talks about the hard, difficult, you know, clunky parts of it. Um, and I would just encourage you, if, if that's where you are um, in a, a, a marriage or whatever uh, within that, or you have sexual trauma in your past, um, that it's okay to get help, that we get to a place where we can be healthy within our own person as a sexuality, but within our marriage relationships as well. Um, for those of you that aren't married, that are still single, um, or choosing to be single, um, let me encourage you to remain sexually pure. Don't bring sexual trauma into what could be a, a potential future relationship. Just because you're not married now doesn't mean that you can't protect your future marriage now. And you can do that um, by how you enter into dating relationships um, now, how we use that sexuality. In verse 6 then, he goes on. He's going to give some uh, other advice, um, principles in marriage. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's referring to himself being single. He's like, I wish everybody were single and not married. <laughs> uh, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another kind. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that, I, that it is good for them to remain, a, that remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
To the married, I give this charge. He says, not I, but the Lord. Now, he's made a, a distinction there. One part, he says, not, he says, I say this. He says, actually, the Lord says, it's not I. And now he's saying, I, not the Lord. It doesn't mean, hey, this is advice you can kind of ignore. This isn't actually from the Holy Spirit. What he's done there in the beginning part is he's going he's gonna to say, um, to, to the rest, I, I say, he says, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a man who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother and sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Um, that's in the context then of verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not the Lord. Um, uh, not, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. So he says, he's quoting a teaching of Jesus when he says, not I, but the Lord. And then he wants to distinguish, I'm not quoting Jesus anymore. I'm giving you my, um, my instruction. Um, and he'll go on to say that he too has the Holy Spirit. So it isn't like, hey, this is instruction you have to listen to because it's from the Lord, and this isn't because it's not from the Lord. He's just distinguishing, he's quoting a teaching of Jesus around divorce, and then his um, exposition, essentially, of that. So what do we make of these verses then as well? You get, again, this balance that's here. In traditional cultures, of which much of Northern Ireland still is, um, we can make this kind of idol out of marriage and family, right? Any singles starting to feel that pressure at all, right? When, when people ask you, um, there's this kind of question of like, when you get married or when you, are you, you, know, you seeing anyone or, or any of these kind of things. We can kind of feel this kind of pressure that a more traditional culture puts on us and we can make an idol out of marriage and family as if somehow you're not a complete person unless um, you're married, um, as if you're somehow less than if you're still single. And that's not what the scripture says at all. Paul says, man, I wish, I wish you guys would stay single like me. In other parts of the scripture, he'll go on to, to talk about why that is. Um, it's because you have more time that you can actually devote to the Lord. You can give yourself um, to the furtherance of the kingdom of God in ways that people that are limited, that are, that are married are limited. Um, I am limited in what I can do because I have, because I'm not my own. Right? I can't just decide, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to take off and move to Africa and uh, do mission over there now. I, have to con- I might, but I have to consider my wife. I have three kids I need to consider in that. It's, not, it's, it's just not me anymore. Um, there's now five of us that I have to consider in major decisions. And even in time. Um, there was a time when Sue and I didn't have kids that we gave a lot more time to ministry. Um, maybe unhealthily so, I don't know. But then as you have kids, you, your kids take up your time. And, and that is ministry as well. I can't, as we saw even in, in the uh, commissioning of an elder this morning, if an elder fails in his family, then he's failed as an elder. And so our ministry is to our, our family, um, first and foremost. Our ministry flows out of that. But as a single person, Paul didn't have to worry about that. You think about what Paul went through. And even the travel, even the missionary journeys that he made, even the sicknesses that he went, even the beatings that he took, even the being in prison, all of that. Imagine doing that with a wife and kids. I'm not sure it would have happened. 
I'm not sure that Paul could have actually been faithful to his call as a husband and father and still accomplished all of that. He did all of that as a single person. He was able to be singularly devoted um, uh, in, in his mission. And so Paul calls it, Paul calls singleness a gift, just as he calls marriage a gift. They're just two different kinds of gifts. And so if you're single here this morning, guess what? Right now, you have the gift of singleness. And we're to embrace that gift for as long as God gives you that gift. And he might give you a different gift at some point, a gift of marriage. Um, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow some kind of cultural pressure uh, of some sort to guide and direct us that way. It works the opposite way, though, too, doesn't it? In a more liberal culture, which tends to be more in like cities and, and things like that, we can make an, an idol out of independence, out of liberty, out of singleness. Uh, I don't want to be tied down. I'm going to pursue a career. As if family is some, is some kind of second-rate kind of job, especially for women. This idea that being a mom and, and staying home and raising a family is somehow not as good as like climbing some corporate ladder somewhere is ridiculous. Now, if you're single and you're pursuing a career, even if you're married and you're pursuing a career, you can do that with a family. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's, that's necessarily wrong. What I want to highlight is being a mother isn't second rate. That's a high calling. Ask the men in the room, which is easier, going to work or staying home with children? It's going to work. <laughs> it's going to work. I'm telling you right now, going to an office, doing all of that, it has pressures. It has whatever. I've stayed home with my kids. I'm like, is it time to go to work yet? I got to go to work. <laughs> it's a high calling, and it should be one that, that is disparaged. Both of these things are a gift. Neither are meant to be idolized. And so the Bible doesn't do either. The Bible actually talks about marriage um, in many ways. Right? Husbands, you're to love your wives in the same way that Christ did, that he laid down his life for her, Ephesians 5. And then he goes on to talk about um, marriage, how we're mutually submissive to one another, the beautiful beauty of marriage. But then he says, I'm not actually talking about marriage. I'm talking about how it's a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage is an image of the perfect oneness we have with God. And so sex in marriage is a foretaste of the complete intimacy that we get with God. This naked and unashamedness that we see in the very beginning. So on one hand, if intimacy with God is going to be amazing, which it is, then the foretaste is going to be pretty good. That marriage, that, that sexual intimacy is going to be good. But on the other hand, if it's just a shadow of what will be, if it was never meant to be the thing that was ultimate, marriage is penultimate. If it's never going to completely satisfy us in the way that our marriage essentially to Jesus will, then it's not essential. It's not something that you absolutely have to have. And so Paul says, hey, if you're married, great. He's going to go on in, in the chapter to say, that's great, but it comes with a lot of great difficulties. It comes with some burdens. If you're single, great. That's a gift that God has given you. And that's going to come with some difficulties. That's going to come with some burdens. But don't kill yourself to get married. Marriage and singleness are both gifts, and they're both callings. They're both high callings. They're just in different kind of ways. 
neither of them are going to fulfill you. So if you think holding on to your independence, getting to just do what you want sexually, but getting to hold on to the rest of your freedoms, that's going to be the way that you're actually going to be happy in life, you're going to end up sorely disappointed. But likewise, if you think, man, if I could just get married, you know, if I could just find that one who will complete me, your spouse will never be able to bear that burden. That's a role that only Jesus is meant to play in your life. And you'll be sorely let down as well. (laughs) Only Jesus is the true lover and spouse of our soul, gives us the right perspective of, of not making marriage or independence an idol. It's the gospel, a right understanding of who Jesus is, what he has given to us that allows us to live in the right kind of sexual freedom, a sexual freedom within marriage um, that is to be enjoyed, that is to be a foretaste of this intimacy, this vulnerability, this being completely exposed before our lover that's meant to be a shadow of who Jesus is. But all of us will one day receive, receive that, those of us that are following Jesus. And so we don't have to search for that now. If you're single this morning, um, make that decision to essentially, I think how we approach these things is important, right? If, have you ever been like hungry but not able to eat, but you want to eat? Um, um, I remember being on a road trip with some friends, and um, we were like, this was in America, and so you can go a long distance in between kind of towns and villages and things like that. And uh, we were coming to a town, we're like, should we stop and get something to eat here? And we're like, the choices weren't that great. And we're like, now nah, we'll wait till the next exit. We'll wait till the next one. And it was like another hour, over an hour, and now we're famished. We're starving. We're like, whatever comes up next, we're just going to stop and eat there. I don't care if it's, you know, gas station food or whatever it is. Like, you just would have ate anything because you were hungry and you wanted to eat. But if you think about fasting, right, when you're fasting, you're hungry, you want to eat, but you've already made up your mind that you're not going to for a period of time. And you're not going to for kind of spiritual reasons because of that. And so you're hungry, and, and you're diff- you're, you're, uh, it's difficult, but it's not the same kind of hunger. It's not the same kind of difficulty as if you're going to eat and you've made up your mind that you want to eat something. And so if you're single this morning, um, enter into that sexual fasting. Make up your mind that, listen, I'm going to not partake of that until it's the right time for that. It doesn't mean it takes all of the difficulty away, but I think it's a little bit of a different perspective. And then as we close here, I just want us to uh, come back to really where we started. Because in a room this big, um, I'm sure not all of us are sexually pure people, whether you're single or married, um, in, that, in, that, um, in, in either of those categories. And so it's easy sometimes to, to hear these kind of things, and we can heap a lot of kind of shame and guilt. And there's a right kind of guilt that we should feel, right? When we've offended God, we should feel guilty in that. But there's a kind of guilt that leads us back to his grace and forgiveness once again. And there's a kind of guilt that, that Satan wants us to feel that's really full of shame, that drives us away from God's grace. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. I'd encourage you to read it. It's this phenomenally beautiful story. And it's the story of a prophet called Hosea that God calls. And God calls Hosea and he commands him to go and marry 
a woman called Gomer. Not the best name. Um, don't name your daughters Gomer. Um, but marry, marry this woman with, with the promise that she was going to be unfaithful to him. Imagine that. Imagine entering into a relationship that you knew was going to um, be adulterous. And she does. She's unfaithful, and she sleeps with many different marriage partners. She gets pregnant outside of marriage, all of this sorts of stuff. And she ends up actually being um, sold into slavery, like sex trafficked in a way. And she's up on this bidding block, um, and she's there to be auctioned off, naked, exposed in front of everybody. And the bidding begins, and then she hears a familiar voice. And it's the voice of her husband. The highest bidder. Imagine being her. You've just been unfaithful multiple times, and this man has bought you back. And I imagine the fear that might have struck her. He's going to get his revenge. He's bought me back to enact his revenge. And yet that's not the reason at all he buys her back. As a prophet of God, he buys her back. He brings her home. And he washes her clean. And he clothes her once again. And extends love and grace to her. And God calls Hosea to do that, to be a picture of what he is like to his people. Because you and I are that bride. You and I are that gomer. We've all committed adultery according to the Bible. Not sexual adultery necessarily, but the Bible uses this, especially in the Old Testament, over and over again, this idea of God's people being adulterers. They've been unfaithful to him. They've sought love and affection in other places other than the God who's been faithful, covenantally faithful to them. And yet what does he do to us? He buys us back with a high price, the blood of his own son. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he buys us back. And what does it say? We're going to go back to where we started. Verse 9. Verse 11. In uh, chapter 6. And such were some of you. He just listed off all these things. All these kind of people that aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so this morning, that might be you, it might be some of you. Maybe you've got sexual brokenness in your past. Maybe your sexual past doesn't include, isn't just limited to a relationship of a marriage between one man and one woman. That doesn't mean that you're broken forever. You, if you're a believer this morning, you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been forgiven. You've been made right. Not because of what you've accomplished, You've inherited that because of what Jesus has done through his death 
for you. And so we don't have to live that way anymore. We're freed from that. And as we come to the table, once again, (laughs) to be reminded of God's grace to us, um, we have the ability and the power to now flee from sexual immorality as well as greediness, as well as being revilers, as well as being all these other things, liars, thieves that are on this list. Not because of our own power, but in the spirit, the power of the spirit of our God that's been given to us. And if you're not a believer this morning, that's on offer to you as well. It's a gift that God freely gives to each of us, that you can be cleansed from your past guilt and shame and sin, whatever that is, however much brokenness is in your past, sexually or otherwise. Um, Jesus comes, washes us, sanctifies us. He makes us more like his son Jesus. He makes us holy. He makes us pure. He makes us one degree of glory to the next, more like his son, that we may reflect him and his kingdom, and that we would inherit his coming kingdom in the end. Let's pray. Father, we've sung of your goodness, the goodness of Jesus. That goodness um, doesn't, doesn't ignore our sin. It doesn't ignore our past. It doesn't say it's, in, ah, it's no big deal, uh, no worries. It takes all the seriousness of our past, all the seriousness of our sin, and puts it all on Jesus who bears the full wrath of God, the full penalty of that sin on our behalf for us. You've given us uh, this great exchange of, of your righteousness for our sinful past, for our sinful present, for our sinful future. And so, Father, we pray that that would capture our, our desires once again, that it would stir our desires away from sexual immorality, that, it, that you would give us the power uh, that you've promised us. You've promised us that there's no temptation, that, that you've not given us the ability to flee from. And so, Father, I pray that once again you would reorder our affections away from uh, broken sexuality, uh, away from greed, away from um, anger, all the ways that we prefer other, ourselves above, uh, above, above other people, um, and that you would make us see Jesus and his beauty once again, who did the opposite of that, who actually was the one person who deserved to be independent from us as a sinner. Uh, as sinners, as the one perfect person. And yet he takes the form of a servant, lays all of that aside, and actually does what is best for us and not for him. Father, may we be like Jesus um, in all areas of our life, Um, whether we're single, even as Jesus was his whole life, a high calling for sure, But whether we are single, whether we're married, Father, may we be like Jesus. Uh, Father, we confess uh, where where we fail in that area. We receive your grace and forgiveness once again. Uh, Father, give us that assurance that we are your people through the evidence of you changing us slowly but surely. Sometimes not slowly, but surely. And Father, would you do it again, once again, this morning? Amen.